People with eating disorders can often report rigidity in thought and rigidity in behavior patterns. One of the really wonderful aspects of psychedelics is the opportunity for increased brain plasticity, increased connection. And so psychedelics offer an opportunity to get a break from those rigid thought patterns, from those rigid behavior patterns, which also allows for an opportunity to create new connections. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Adele LaFrance, clinical psychologist, research scientist, and leader in the research and practice of psychedelic medicine. Currently, she's the clinical investigator and strategy lead for the MAPS-sponsored MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study for eating disorders, and a collaborator on the Imperial College Study for Psilocybin and Anorexia Nervosa. Together, we talked about her history as a clinician and why she believes psychedelics may offer a different and perhaps more successful way of treating eating disorders than traditional methods. We also spoke about a system she developed known as emotion-focused family therapy and explored why Dr. LaFrance believes emotion-focused family therapy can be used effectively in conjunction with psychedelic therapy to effectively treat eating disorders. It's a great conversation that I know you'll learn a lot from. I, I certainly did. Uh, before we get into that, here's something happening at Esalen that I'm really excited about. Live and learn at Esalen for four weeks as part of our live extended education program, or LEAP. Under the guidance of our skilled faculty and surrounded by a cohort of 12 other learners, students will be challenged to expand their personal growth edges and open up to greater discoveries of self and community. Learn more and apply now at esalen.org. Now here's my conversation with Dr. Adele LaFrance. Anorexia nervosa in particular is one of the most lethal psychiatric illnesses. I think second only now to uh, opioid related deaths. And in addition to being extremely lethal, there are no agreed upon treatments that are thought to be considered, you know, best practice for anorexia nervosa. There are some treatments that are found to be effective for other eating disorders, binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, but as a whole, they are notoriously um, difficult to treat combined with high mortality rates and um, definitely significant impairment in terms of quality of life. Why are eating disorders so treatment resistant? Well, I mean, gosh, there are so many reasons um, why that might be. Some, some are related to uh, genetics. Some are related to more neurobiological factors. Another aspect of eating disorders that make them quite difficult to treat is that uh, some people regard eating disorder symptoms as emotion converters. So ways to deal with the stress, distress in an overwhelmed state or an under-resourced state or environment. And culturally, you know, we still really struggle with our relationship with emotions mm. and our capacities to kind of work with emotions in a, in a healthy and productive uh, manner. The other piece is that there's so much influence in terms of the um, cultural influence, media influence in terms of how people should look, you know, and so then that gets kind of wrapped up in it, which uh, makes it even more challenging. Hmm. Could I ask you to speak just a bit about the gender breakdown with regards to who is affected uh, by eating disorders? Well, it's difficult to tell um, for certain because there's still so much stigma relating to eating disorders in, in men. People used to think that one out of every 10 people struggling with an eating disorder uh, was male. But I feel like that's probably an underestimate um, as a result of, of response bias. 
I did not set out to work in the field of eating disorders. My PhD was in school and child clinical psychology. I wanted to be a, uh, a psychologist who worked primarily doing um, assessments and individual therapy with kids and teens. But uh, when I did my, uh, my pre-doctoral internship, I had to choose a rotation that I knew nothing about in order to kind of round out my experiences. And I was assigned to an eating disorder rotation in a children's hospital. And I remember feeling like, oh, gosh, <laughs> I don't know about this. I don't know if I'm cut out for this because I had some internalized stigma around what it's like to work with people with eating disorders and their families. But it was a tremendously positive experience. And it made it such that my very first job as a psychologist was working with an eating disorder program. And I've worked with in the field of eating disorders ever since. So I guess over a decade now. I'm curious about why it is especially satisfying for you to work within this field, you know, where the relapse rates can be quite high. Sometimes it's estimated around 40%. Is it about helping people with a condition that is quite difficult? You know, it's a really good question. I think part of my draw to work with eating disorders was because I went through my own process of having negative beliefs about those with eating disorders and their families and really kind of came through to the other side. And so feel like just as an act of advocacy, it's a really meaningful field in which to work. And um, yeah, like I, I really want people to know that eating disorders is not just about control, you know, which is often a word used to describe the phenomenology of eating disorders and families where there isn't an eating disorder are not these highly dysfunctional families. They're people like us who are struggling and their struggles end up manifesting in this way. Everyone deserves healing. And one of the things that I'm really trying to do with my work with families is to evolve the narrative around parent blame. You know, years ago, when children and teens were hospitalized for eating disorders, they would do what is referred to as parentectomies. So they would remove that person from their family because of the belief that the families were either the primary cause or a primary maintenance um, factor. Mm. And now what we know is that when families present for treatment, they look a lot different than they did before the eating disorder was in their home. You know, the presence of a serious and chronic health issue or mental health issue reorganizes family patterns, amplifies family patterns so that they can appear far more dysfunctional than they actually are. I was wondering if you could just speak about sort of the gamut of ways that eating disorders show up. Well, one of the factors that runs across eating disorders is difficulties with emotion processing. Many people believe that restricting food numbs, that binging soothes, and that purging provides relief from stress, from distress. And then, um, you know, when you think about other features of illness, like overexercise or ruminative thought patterns, you know, these too can be regarded as emotion converters, ways to distract oneself from internal stress, distress. What are ruminative thought patterns? You know, thinking about how many calories one is consuming or what their next meal is going to be, whether or not they're going to eat a meal in front of someone, you know, like these thoughts can really, really consume someone who's struggling with an eating disorder to the point where it can impair their quality of life. 
I'm curious to hear about the psychedelic piece in this. You are currently the clinical investigator and strategy lead for the MAP-sponsored MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study for eating disorders. I'd just love to hear about how you became involved why you think it's effective, what it's all about. Sure. Um, how I became involved. Well, a number of years ago, I conducted some research looking at the potential of ayahuasca in the context of eating disorders. And to my knowledge, that was the first uh, research study to, to look at this question. And, you know, the, the study was simple but uh, we learned a lot about its potential and it actually got quite a lot of press. Um, and so I was presenting at different conferences and that's where Rick Doblin and I connected and he asked if I would be interested in, you know, leading the protocol development for a new indication, you know, with eating disorders. And so it kind of happened organically. I didn't know much about MDMA at that time. So of course I wanted to learn more about it. And when I learned about the potential mechanisms of change with MDMA, uh, decreased fear, increased ability to trust oneself and others, facilitation of emotion and trauma process, processing, increased self-compassion, I really felt like, okay, this could be something really, really key, you know, as a new treatment paradigm uh, for eating disorders. And so got on board with, you know, his team and put together the study. We got FDA approval on our first round, which had never happened before, which was really, really exciting. And so I did a lot of consulting with colleagues from the eating disorders field and in order to kind of develop a protocol that reflected not only what MAPS was learning about MDMA for PTSD, but also what the field of eating disorder had to contribute in order to potentially optimize outcomes. Yes. And, and what kind of contributions did the field of eating disorder lend to this? One of the kind of most, the most amazing developments in the field of eating disorders is the role of family as supportive individuals, you know, in the treatment process, both emotionally supportive, but also supportive with uh, behavioral symptoms. And that's something that we don't see, you know, in different areas of mental health. And so if you're an adult with an eating disorder and you know, you're, you're a patient at the Maudsley hospital in London, uh, for example, like your family is going to be involved in some way. In fact, there's legislation to protect families because of the knowledge that the presence of a severe chronic illness in the family does impact, you know, everyone. And so, you know, if you have an adult with depression or serious OCD or serious anxiety, it's not quote unquote typical for the treatment protocol to include family members. Mm. And so in the work with eating disorders, both my study with MAPS and the study that I'm connected with at Imperial, looking at psilocybin assisted psychotherapy for anorexia nervosa, we have included family or supportive other involvement right in the protocol for two reasons. One is that we know that close others can be taught some simple, but very effective emotional support strategies, behavioral support strategies to optimize outcomes. But number two, using these types of medicine in the context of healthcare can lead to um, major changes, rapid growth. And anytime you have major changes or rapid growth, it can actually create serious disruptions mm. to systems, including the family. Right. And so, for example, um, I was hearing recently about uh, about a, a case that's happening as part of a research study. The participant experienced some really major changes in terms of their relationship with assertion and healthy anger, and that caused some major ripples and difficulties, you know, in the home setting, because they didn't have the right kinds of support 
to navigate, you know, those disruptions that, that those evolutions that were happening in the context of those relationships. And so by having caregivers involved during the preparation sessions, you know, during the integration sessions, even providing them opportunities to meet with a study therapist on their own to potentially target and transform maintenance patterns or to pay attention to some of their own anxieties that arise that could end up being problematic in the context of the treatment, I think will be really, really helpful. I'm very curious about how the study actually works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for the MDMA assisted psychotherapy study for eating disorders, specifically for anorexia nervosa and binge eating disorder, which are the two indications that we're examining, um, each participant will uh, benefit from three prep sessions uh, once a week. And then they'll have an experimental session where they get to use MDMA with a therapist followed by three integration sessions. And then that uh, sequence is repeated three times. Hmm. So three prep sessions, experimental, three integration, and then three more um, integration sessions after the second dosing, and then three more integration sessions after the third dosing session. And then throughout, there's also involvement you know, of, of the support of other. And are the, the therapists especially trained in eating disorders? Uh, yes. So we have been working on, you know, getting ready for the study for a couple of years now. And so every one of the therapists has had training in MDMA assisted psychotherapy in eating disorders in emotion focused techniques, as well as in um, emotion focused family therapy work, which is the treatment model that I developed, but that it's also being integrated, you know, in some ways within the protocol, like working with the caregiver. I might imagine at this point in time, it's difficult to find therapists who are, who are skilled at all of these, these protocols. That's why we've had, you know, a lot of opportunities for training over these last couple of years to bring everyone up to speed. Some of the team members are more or less experienced in eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So there is variability, um, but there's going to be you know, regular, you know, supervision and opportunities for professional development. But I feel really, really, really good about where the team is at. You know, they've really taken this study to heart and they've really put a lot of um, energy into, you know, getting ready so that they can be the best versions of themselves for the, for the participants who end up uh, coming through. And may I ask how many people have been treated in the study? We actually haven't started enrolling participants yet. We are hoping to get that ball rolling in the fall. We've had some delays, mostly related to COVID, um, but the psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy study at Imperial College has begun enrolling participants. In fact, they've completed a number of them. Yeah, it's looking really promising. There's, there's a lot to be learned. And we really look forward to kind of starting to uh, examine not just the data, but the lessons, you know, from, from uh, this research study. Why do you believe that psychedelics, whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or other might offer mm -hmm. a, a different and, and maybe a more successful way of treating eating disorders than traditional methods? Well, I, um, one of the really wonderful aspects of psychedelics is the opportunity for increased brain plasticity, um, increased connection, you know, at the brain level and people with eating disorders can often report rigidity in thought and rigidity in behavior patterns. And so psychedelics offer an opportunity to get a break from those rigid thought patterns, from those rigid behavior patterns, which also allows for an opportunity to create new connections, uh, new behavior patterns. And if we think about more conventional psychotherapy models, if people are really having difficulty with cognitive flexibility, psychotherapy can only take them so far. 
with these medicines, you know, that really kind of turns that on its head in a really, really good way. The other reason why I feel like these medicines offer new hope is because of what I talked about a little bit earlier, where psychedelics seem to lead to embodied healing, where someone could feel like you tell themselves, I am lovable. I am lovable. I am lovable. But if they feel it with every cell of their body, it becomes a way of knowing that is almost unshakable that can be forgotten, but that can also be remembered, right? Because it's cellular. I've, I interviewed a number of individuals who worked with ayahuasca uh, to help heal their eating disorder. And, you know, some of what was shared with me was really, really quite beautiful in terms of this, like, new experience with the body under the effect of a psychedelic. In fact, I can read a quote from a participant. I saw myself as a rotting, decaying skeleton. And I saw myself as this beautiful, full body, just beautiful woman with this long hair. And I wanted to be that woman. I wanted to be that full loving woman that has so much to offer my family and the world. And it was then where I felt my ribs. I could feel them. They were so hollow. I was just like, I can't wait to get back and just start gaining some weight. Hmm. It's, it's so powerful. I really just so appreciate you dedicating your work to something that affects so many people and it has seemed so intractable and there's just something so hopeful about these studies. Yeah, not without risks, you know, and not without a real and necessary examination of, of other potential concerns that could arise. You know, I think about a woman reached out to me a number of years ago, desperate, you know, for some direction in terms of psychedelic medicine and, you know, things are not legal right now in North America. And so I absolutely could not recommend underground work. Um, but this woman ended up going to Peru because she said she would do anything. And thankfully her story has a very happy ending after a 30 year experience with a very punishing eating disorder. She is now in recovery and symptom-free, but that's not going to happen with everyone. And so when people are desperate, they may be less likely to carefully weigh risks. They may ignore red flags, gut instincts. One thing that comes to mind with ayahuasca is that Additionally, the ceremony includes a dieta before the, mm-hmm. before you go in there. And that entails abstaining from foods. And of course, then there's the infamous purging that happens during the ceremony. Can that be triggering for some struggling with eating disorders? Sam, those were two of my primary questions when I did that study. So yeah, excellent insight on that for sure. Um, some people did report that the prep diet was triggering you know, that it uh, awakened thoughts and even behaviors within themselves. That was frightening. So I, I do think that it's a very good question. In fact, in my fantasy, you know, I will put together a retreat in Peru for people with eating disorders. And I would like to work with the indigenous people to sort out which of the restrictions are absolutely necessary versus which of the restrictions can we be more flexible with in the service of, of these individuals. So that's the first piece around the prep diet. The purging, however, was really um, a different uh, outcome. So of the people that we interviewed, none of them said that the purging was triggering in any way. In fact, many of them had extremely profound healing experiences um, through purging with ayahuasca in that 
they understood their relationship with purging in a completely different way, in a much more self-compassionate way. And they experienced purging as a true release, as opposed to a temporary coping mechanism to get through something hard. And some reported that after they um, experienced purging in ceremony, they never purged again, Mm. you know, outside of ceremony. Mm. So that was really, really cool. I mean, our sample size was small. And so I could imagine that there are other perspectives that, you know, we need to consider of of other people who've had these experiences. Um, But March, the purging experiences were considered to be completely different than eating disorder symptoms and um, really, really healing. Can you speak a bit about the, the therapeutic side of psychedelic psychotherapy? In the context of psychotherapy, there's a lot of prep work that um, needs to be done both to help the participant develop and strengthen trust with the guides, with the facilitators, with the therapists, but with the medicine and with themselves. However, I participated in an ayahuasca ceremony abroad. I don't know, like, I don't know when it was, I guess it was a little over a year ago. And one of the messages that I got was don't fool yourself into thinking that you, that we can adequately prepare anyone for what's to come with some of these powerful substances. We need to do our best, but there are some times that these substances can open something up that, you know, that is just not possible to prepare for. And so the integration piece ends up being really, really important. Mm. People talk a lot about integration these days. I feel like we need to have the same commitment to the conversation for preparation though, as well, for the reason that I just stated, you know, like some people can have a really powerful psychedelic experience and it completely shakes their way that they see the world, their relationship with themselves, others. And I think it's important for people to know that that's a possibility, you know, so that they can at least be prepared for the unexpected. With MDMA and psilocybin looking to gain FDA approval in the next year or so, could people with conditions such as eating disorders gain legal access to this therapy? Michael Midhofer and Tim Brewerton and I just published a study, and the title of the study is The Potential Use of MDMA-Assisted Psychotherapy in the Treatment of Eating Disorders Comorbid with PTSD. And so what we kind of talked about was that there are high rates of PTSD in individuals with eating disorders. And because MDMA is showing up as this really powerful uh, medicine in the treatment of PTSD, it could make really good sense to look at its use in those with PTSD who also have an eating disorder. Mm. And so I think that once MDMA is able to be used legally for PTSD, there will be an opportunity not far off in the future where those with eating disorders and PTSD might be able to get treatment. Coming soon at Esalen, trauma, memory, and the restoration of oneself with Bessel van der Kolk and Leisha Skye. Study and experience EMDR, yoga, IFS, theater work, and neurofeedback to overcome a traumatic past and regain the capacity to be fully alive in the present. March 14th to March 18th, 2022 in Big Sur. Apply now at esalen.org. Adele, I want to ask you about a system of of therapy that you have developed called emotion-focused family therapy. 
love for you to speak about that and, and, and ask you, does emotion focused family therapy feel particularly useful in treatment of eating disorders? Um, yes, it's basically how I developed it because I was desperate <laughs> for something more. Uh, um, so, uh, when I first graduated and I was working as a psychologist, I was treating child and adolescent eating disorders. And at that time, uh, a modality of therapy called family-based treatment was new on the scene and gaining traction and people were really excited about it. It was meant to be an outpatient treatment though. I was working, uh, in a center where there was varying levels of care from inpatient to partial hospitalization, including outpatient. And so we were trying to adapt this model across the different levels of care and people did well, you know, many people did well, but there were many children, teens and their families who were not responding as we would expect. And there were no other options. And so at that time I was learning about emotion focused therapy developed by Leslie Greenberg. And as clinicians, we were being taught that uh, symptoms are emotion converters or as a result of unprocessed or maladaptive emotion schemes and um, processes. And I thought, okay, um, if I'm going to take what I've learned from this family-based treatment, where we empower parents to support the renourishment of their children in the home setting, we need to be teaching them emotion processing skills too, because the restriction or the binging or the purging is at least in part fueled by difficulties with emotion processing. And if we're thinking that the parents are our best resource because of the neurobiological bonds between them and their children, then wouldn't that be true with emotion as well? But that had not been done before. So I, you know, worked with colleagues thinking about it, testing things out and developed a framework where we taught parents and caregivers, the basics of emotion processing, and we empowered them to use these skills with their loved one, both when their loved one was experiencing urges to be symptomatic, or they were resistant, resistant to nutrition, um, as well as in the course of their daily lives. And we saw that it was really working. And in many cases, what the parents were doing was way more effective than what we were doing in individual therapy with those same teens. And so what I got from that was if we teach parents some, you know, simple emotion processing skills and they use them imperfectly in limited duration because of the neurobiological bond between them, because of the way their child's brain lights up in their presence, they're more powerful than we are. And so that was kind of the beginning of um, the development of EFFT. The other aspect that really inspired me to develop EFFT was that I was uh, working on an inpatient unit and I was working with the family of an 18 year old who was um, hospitalized because of medical instability, secondary to anorexia nervosa. And the parents were supposed to support their teen um, with eating snacks at, at ho- in the hospital to prepare for the transition home, you know, where the parents would help their daughter eat on a regular basis until they were fully weight restored. And they would take their kid out on passes and they would do these snacks with them, but the child wouldn't finish the food. And I would check in with the parents, like, okay, how'd it go? Oh, well, well, did did she eat everything? No. Um, Oh, how come? Oh, we weren't sure if she needed to eat at all. Or another time it was like, ah, no, we went with our gut. You told us to, you know, go with our gut. We didn't think she needed to have all that. Meanwhile, their daughter's 
hospitalized, you know, for medical instability, hmm. uh, secondary to malnutrition. And I remember just really butting heads with this one parent, like, like trying to impress upon them the importance of the nutrition and the, the complete nutrition. We get into like these little episodes of, of conflict, actually. And I remember there was, uh, there was this one day in session where we were trying to brainstorm, you know, what got in the way again. And it dawned on me. And I looked at the parents and I said, oh my gosh, you're afraid that if you insist that she eats it all, that she might become so distressed that she might want to kill herself. Mm. And immediately both parents teared up. Dad's sister had had a really serious eating disorder, other mental health issues and um, experiences with suicide attempts. And what was happening was that when their daughter would resist the nutrition, she would go inward, turn away, and it activated a trauma response in the parents. And so then they would back off. And this is not an uncommon experience across the age span with eating disorders where well-intentioned people want to help, but then they get scared and they back off and they can end up in maintenance patterns. And I always wondered like, why would they do that? You know, like, why wouldn't they help their child to eat more? And then I thought, wait a minute. If I really thought that I had the option between a sick kid and a dead one, what would I choose? Every day of the week, I would choose sick, you know? And so I conducted some research to kind of prove it. And sure enough, and these are published studies now, we, sh- we demonstrated that when parents, caregivers, spouses of people with eating disorders engage in accommodating or enabling behaviors, it's because they're totally freaked out, afraid that if they don't, something much worse will happen, like suicide. Mm. And so as part of the EFFT model, not only do we equip parents, caregivers, partners, with skills, behavioral skills, emotion processing skills, relational strengthening skills. But we also have a whole module on identifying, targeting, and transforming what we call emotion blocks, fears that get in the way of their provision of the right kinds of support. And then, of course, clinicians are no different. We get wrapped up in our own um, internal challenges. And so there's a module for clinicians to do the same, to identify, to target, to transform their own clinical blocks that get in the way of their belief in recovery for their patient, that get in the way of their belief in the family's role, that get in the way of their um, capacity to implement different interventions, you know, because of their own anxieties or fear of being to blame if it doesn't go well. And so EFFT is now a comprehensive model that started off because I didn't know what else to do with eating disorders and started learning more about, you know, emotion theory and how it relates both to emotion processing, but also these block patterns. And now it's a treatment model recognized by the APA that is being used cross-diagnostically. So that's been really, really, really exciting kind of witness the evolution to be a part of that evolution. Yeah, that's fantastic. Are there resources online or books that you could point to uh, that would familiarize folks with the emotion-focused family therapy model? 
Absolutely. So I wrote a book with uh, Catherine Henderson and Sherry Maiman, and it's published by the American Psychological Association. The main title is Emotion Focused uh, Family Therapy. I also wrote a parenting book um, with a colleague, Ashley Miller, who's a child psychiatrist up in Canada. And it's, uh, it's informed by the principles of EFFT, but it's for general parenting. It's called what to say to kids when nothing seems to work. And then uh, my own personal website has not just information on the model, but links to all of the uh, research that's been done over the last uh, decade. And that's dradellefrance.com. Now, do you believe that emotion-focused family therapy could be used effectively in conjunction with psychedelic therapy? That's what we're doing. (laughs) 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 Yep. (laughs) So uh, the psilocybin studied Imperial is um, informed by principles of EFFT in terms of the supportive uh, other involvement. My, the MDMA study that I, I designed includes elements of, of EFFT as well. I think that right now, most of the psychedelic medicine paradigms really only looks at the individual in the office, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the client, the patient. Yeah. Yep. And uh, for this to be successful, um, I really think that we're going to have to look more at the system. Um, there's a study that I read rest recently where it said that if in a married couple, one person starts individual therapy, I think there's a 40% chance that the relationship will not survive but that, that, that rate goes down if both parties are in therapy, either individual or as a couple. And so if you kind of think about that possibility, and then you add the power of psychedelic medicine, I really do worry about um, people's family relationships and marital relationships. If they engage in psychedelic medicine without some involvement of important others in their life, Mm. you know, because of, of what we mentioned earlier, like healing disrupts systems. I've heard of so many stories of people coming back from ayahuasca, having these major realizations of how they needed to be differently, different in relationship. And then they go and they try to have conversations with family members or close others or their spouse even, and it doesn't go well. And then it, it kind of confirms their fears of the relationship. And sometimes there are major ruptures that happen, but my belief is that it's normal for family members, close others to feel defensive when this kind of material emerges, emerges after, you know, a really powerful experience. And that if the, the person receiving the information was prepared, was supported, was helped to understand what was going on and why it was happening that there could be um, many more relationships, not just saved, you know, but strengthened. Adele, what would you say to a listener of this podcast who might be struggling with an eating disorder of their own? If they felt interested and inspired to explore psychedelic psychotherapy, is it feasible for them to gain access, maybe to participate in a study or what's an alternate path they might follow? Yeah. So there are studies happening right now that are enrolling participants. And so there's one at um, UCSD looking at psilocybin assisted psychotherapy for anorexia nervosa. There's another at John Hopkins um, and there's another at Imperial college in London. Everyone's still enrolling. We're going to begin enrolling um, for the MDMA assisted psychotherapy study. We think, and we hope in the fall. Um, so there will be uh, some opportunities, but they are few, you know, they're definitely few compared to 
the need that's out there. So I guess what I would say to them is we are coming for you. We are working our butts off to, you know, um, move this forward as quickly as possible, but also as safely and as ethically as possible. And if they can engage in some of these uh, studies, I mean, that's wonderful. If they can't, I really think that it won't be too long until more of these opportunities are more widely available. The other piece I would say is that, um, you know, I conducted a, a, a research project last year on the use of ketamine in the context of emotion-focused assisted psychotherapy. And the preliminary results were really positive. Ketamine is much more widely available, um, but really, really important that it involves a therapist and it involves a therapist who is not just comfortable, but knowledgeable about the uniqueness of the eating disorder, you know, presentation. I would caution people against um, going underground or booking a flight to Peru because of some risks that um, are possible, you know, going those routes. Um, people with eating disorders do have some vulnerabilities that are quite unique. And I have heard about some horror stories, you know, so I, one of the ayahuasca studies that I conducted, I'm not sure if I mentioned this already, but of the 20 or 21 people we interviewed um, who'd, who'd uh, used ayahuasca as part of their healing from an eating disorder, one of them was sexually assaulted at a retreat center, mm-hmm. you know? And so if, I don't know if that, that represents what's going on more broadly, but one in 20, ouch, you know, like that's, that's scary. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was a number of years ago. There's a lot more attention being paid to this topic. I know that um, colleagues at Shakruna have put out a really great resource around um, the potential of sexual abuse in the context of ayahuasca retreat specifically, but it can happen in, in the context of any psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, you know, there's been in, you know, in the news, over the last couple of years, you know, different incidents of, of uh, clients, patients, either underground or in the context of research studies who have been taken advantage of uh, sexually. And so, you know, I worry, I just worry about our most vulnerable, um, but I do want to assure them that we are really doing everything we can to expedite the availability of these medicines in a good way. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And what about people who might be struggling with an eating disorder who really don't have the inclination to work with psychedelics, but, but do feel attracted to working with a therapist, perhaps under the model of emotion focused family therapy, what would be a a route they might take to, to find a therapist? So there's an, uh, there's an organization called the international Institute for emotion focused family therapy, EFFTinternational.org, And there's a directory of um, clinicians and therapists on that website so that people can see whether or not there's someone in their hometown or home state now that so much is happening virtually. And I also have a website called uh, www.mentalhealthfoundations.ca. And there are hundreds of hours of free videos and other resources that can be supportive and that relate to EFFT or emotion-focused work, 
both for individuals struggling, but also for parents, caregivers, and, and partners. So those are some free resources that are also available. That's wonderful. Adele, I just have one more question for you, um, and then I'll let you go to do the awesome work you're <laughs> doing in the world. I listened to a beautiful interview that you did on Lauren mm -hmm. Taus's podcast, Embodied Life. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of her and the spirit yeah. that she brings to the psychedelic therapy community. Both of you spoke about the importance of love in psychotherapy and in psychedelics. Why is love so crucial for healing? Oh, well, so many of our wounds come from either a lack of love at important times in our life or being hurt in the context of relationships where um, there was a lot of love or there is a lot of love. And really love, the our foundation of love is our foundation of, of security. It's our foundation of safety. And if we look at our culture, the last 100 years, we haven't really been supportive of parents and ways in which they can show love to their kids, you know, in a, in a good and consistent way. I mean, just the way our culture works makes it so that so many parents are unavailable because you know, they have to go to work or they have to take care of themselves. They have to sleep at night. We don't, we're not being raised in communities like we used to. And so really, I hope I'm being really clear about this no blame framework. This is a socio-political cultural problem. And I think it's really, really important because people who have profound healing experiences with psychedelics, more often they, and than not, they talk about the theme of love, love as a healing technology, remembering love, returning to love, increasing their comfort with expressing, you know, love with others or, or realizing that even though their parents hurt them in some way, that the love was still always there. In psychotherapy, you know, uh, Carl Rogers talked about unconditional positive regard as one of the main healing agents between the therapist and the clinician or in the patient. And when you think about that word, unconditional positive regard, hmm, I think maybe he was talking about love, you know, but couldn't say because it would have been way too risky at that time. Hmm. And so I'm not, in, I'm talking about love in someone's life, but also love in the treatment room, like universal love, the, the healthy, safe, boundaried, ethical uh, way that we show love to each other um, when we support each other through, you know, through challenging experiences. And I know Michael Pollan in his book talked about love and he talked about it being so banal, so cliche, you know, like almost embarrassed to talk about it. And I get that. There's a lot of stigma around love as a healing technology. When I did a review of psychedelic studies and I looked for the word love in any title, there was not but a single published article mm -hmm. that had the word love in the title. And it was referring to a song. It wasn't even about love as a healing tool, you know, or energy. I'm a founding member of the love project and we're working on a um, survey instrument that we hope to disseminate in the next th three months, where we will ask people who've had experiences with psychedelics to talk about the healing power of love so that we can really evolve as a culture, a microculture and a macroculture in this way. Dr. Adela France, Thank you so much for joining us today on Voice of the Vessel. And this conversation has really inspired me. 
everyone, you can visit Adele LaFrance at dradelafrance.com. She's also on Twitter at Dr. Adele LaFrance. Yeah, I just really appreciate you and the, the work that you're doing in the world and the rigor that you bring to it and the, the care and the love that you bring to it too. Well, thank you, Sam. I really, really appreciate this opportunity. And, you know, it's really nice to chat about some of these topics that um, you know, are sometimes a bit uncomfortable. So, yeah, I think that um, together we're going we're gonna to figure this out in a good way. So thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you're liking this show, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And hey, while you're at it, share on social media. Until next time, be well. <laughs>